Hi, everyone. My name is Jen Tosley. And my name is Jose Sanchez. It's episode 88 of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. For this episode, we are hosting Professor Robert Agnew, who is speaking with us about his career as a criminologist, his work on general strain theory, and his thoughts on the field. Robert Agnew is Professor of Sociology Emeritus at Emory University. Robert served as the president of the American Society of Criminology in 2013 and is currently a fellow. His research focuses on the causes of delinquency in criminological theory, specifically on his general strain theory. Robert received his PhD in sociology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1980. With that being said, let's bring Robert in. Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to speak with us, and we're very excited to speak with you about your career. Well, thanks for having me. I'm uh, great to be part of the show, and I think it's wonderful that you've taken it upon yourselves to to put this together and disseminate these podcasts. All right. So we want to start at the beginning, and we always love hearing how people seemingly wander into discipline of criminology. So we know that you grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Admittedly, all I know about Atlantic City is what I've seen on TVs. Usually that it has casinos and people go (laughs) spend a weekend there. And so we just want to hear a little bit more about how growing up in Atlantic City influenced your work and your career as a criminologist. Sure. Well, I grew up in Atlantic City during the 1950s and 1960s, and this is before gambling, so no casinos. At the time, Atlantic City was really a declining resort, well past its heyday. In fact, that's one of the reasons uh, they went for casinos. They were hoping that casinos would reverse the decline. But when I grew up, it was a rather poor city, had one of the highest crime rates in the country for a city its size. There was a lot of social division in the city, race-ethnic division. So I lived in an area called the Inlet, a rather poor area of Atlantic City. In fact, some people said they called it the Inlet because they let anybody in. And in the Inlet, there were whites, but some Jews, some Catholics, so division there. There was a large Puerto Rican population, for the most part, you know, involved in the service industry in Atlantic City, and a large African-American population. And to be quite frank, there was a lot of antagonism, social division, not much interaction between these different groups. And Atlantic City was served by one high school that also drew students from a suburban area. So in this one high school, you not only had this race and ethnic division, but also a lot of class division. And at the time, to be quite frank, there was a lot I didn't like about Atlantic City. But in retrospect, I think growing up there served me well, at least with respect to my career in sociology and criminology. I think Atlantic City was a type of place where you couldn't help but be aware that one's social position had a large impact on your life, how you lived it, your life chances, and so on. So uh, in some ways, it was very practical education in sociology. I think from an early age, really at least junior high and high school, I developed kind of a keen interest in the social environment, social position, how it influences behavior. In fact, one of the papers I wrote in high school, my first sociology paper, so to speak, although at the time I didn't know what sociology was, was how race, ethnicity, and social class influence academic achievement. So in some ways, it was kind of an early expression of what would later become my interest in strain theory. So I think in that sense, as growing up in Atlantic City, uh, you know, was of some benefit to my career in criminology. And also, you know, I was exposed to a fair bit of crime and delinquency as well. 
and, you know, in developing general strain theory, some of my other work in criminology, I often reflected back on some of my experiences growing up in an city to inform my work. Great. Yeah. We read somewhere about your high school paper, actually. I can't remember where. Jose, do you remember where? No. It was probably Uh, uh, called The Origins of American Criminology that Frank Collin and some associates edited. That could be. I think so. I think it was the chapter Revitalizing Merton or something along those lines. Yeah, Revitalizing Merton. Yeah. So after high school, you went to Rutgers for your undergrad degree. And so we're, because Jose and I had very similar experiences here, but we're wondering if you started at Rutgers knowing that you wanted to study crime and delinquency, or did you just kind of have this vague idea that sociology was up your alley that you were interested in it? Well, when I began Rutgers, I I was, um, as I say, interested in the social environment and how it affected individuals. And so I took an introductory course in sociology, and I was fortunate to have a very good instructor. And that really sparked my interest in the area. I didn't plan on studying crime and delinquency at the time, but rather I was more interested in social psychology and never had a course in criminology at Rutgers. I actually had a course on sociological theory with Jackson Toby, a well-known criminologist, at least uh, in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, but didn't have any criminology with him. And but loved sociology, was fortunate to have some very good mentors. But once more, my focus was on social psychology. And my senior honors thesis at Rutgers was on the effect of physical appearance on attitudes and behavior. So there was good evidence that physical appearance, particularly one's attractiveness, uh, influences how people view you and how they treat you. And I was wondering, well, does it also influence the attitudes, the values that you develop, the behaviors that you exhibit, and so on? So I did a little original research there, and but no criminology, no crime or delinquency. But I mentioned my honors thesis because a number of years later, my first publication in the journal of criminology was on the impact of physical attractiveness on juvenile delinquency. So I went back and um, drew on some of my work as an undergraduate at Rutgers. And this is something that I should also mention as an aside, is beginning to take off in criminology. Bonnie Burry and some others in particular are starting to do a lot of work on appearance, crime, and uh, and its other impacts. Yeah. So after Rutgers, you went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which I'm guessing most people will know because of Michael Jordan uh, <laughs> and their basketball team seems to generally be pretty good and in the limelight during March Madness. But anyways, I was going to say, I should mention that I'm probably one of the few people who have gone four years at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, never attended a basketball game. <laughs> but oh, I spent really? a lot of time in the library. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what attracted you to the University of North Carolina and no, how did you start sort of drifting into criminology and criminological theory? Well, UNC Chapel Hill at the time, and perhaps still so, had a top five program, graduate program in sociology, some excellent faculty there. But I applied to other places as well, University of Chicago, Wisconsin, and so on. But what attracted me to UNC Chapel Hill, aside from the financial aid package they offered, was that it was a smaller <laughs> program, and it seemed to provide a lot of support to the students there. And so I ended up going there, but again, not intending to study crime and delinquency. And they really didn't have a, a program to speak of in crime and delinquency, although they had some visiting faculty there, Hugh Barlow, Mary Ellen Marsden, and some others who, who occasionally would teach a course in the area. 
But I went there to study social psychology and had an excellent social psychology program. And again, my interest on the impact of the social environment on the individual. But when I was there, I was very fortunate. I had some excellent training in theory, some excellent training in sociological research methods, statistics in particular. And that has really served me well throughout my career. When I was there, I developed a special interest in Emile Durkheim. And I think my interest in crime delinquency started to take off then because Durkheim, of course, in his work on suicide, other work, talks about some of the factors that foster crime and deviance. He develops a version of strain theory. He talks about how, for example, individuals in certain types of society don't experience for strain on their goals and aspirations, and as a result, come to pursue ever-escalating goals. And the pursuit of these goals may lead to deviance, including crime. And um, so I started to develop an interest in crime and deviance there, but still, my major focus was on social psychology. And when I reached my fourth year and was beginning work on my dissertation, my planned dissertation, in fact, was on the impact of the social environment on creativity. And this was a topic that emerged out of the work of Durkheim. Durkheim looks at things like independence, etc., individuality. And I was planning to do an empirical test using survey data. There was great emphasis on survey research at UNC looking at some of the social factors that might impact that creativity. But I was having some trouble finding a data set. And so I was beginning to experience, you might say, some academic strain. There was a lot of pressure at the time at UNC to graduate in four years, five at the absolute most. And so I'm looking around for a data set. One of my friends says, well, come across this data set, Youth in Transition, a longitudinal, very rich longitudinal data set out of University of Michigan. And he said, why don't you take a look at it? And I did. And there were some measures in there sort of related to creativity, autonomy, independence, and so on. But the data set really would allow me to do what I wanted to do. But it did have some excellent measures of delinquency. And it had some you know, measures sort of related to some of the social environmental variables I was interested in. So I thought, well, maybe I could adjust somewhat. Maybe I could focus on crime and delinquency and draw to some extent on Durkheim and some of the factors that Durkheim said contribute to creativity, independence, etc. might also contribute to crime and delinquency. So I started doing some background reading in the area. I never had a formal course on crime and delinquency. And I began with the classics. I was had a strong background in theory, so that's where I began. So I read Merton's Social Structure Anatomy. I read some of the follow-ups, um, Albert Cohen, Delinquent Boys, and Claude and Roland, Delinquency and Opportunity. Travis Hershey, Causes of Delinquency, which had recently come out. Ruth Kornhauser, Social Sources of Delinquency, and so on. And I should say I was guided in this reading by some of the visiting scholars there, Mary Ellen Marsden, as I mentioned, Hugh uh, Barlow and others. And I became very interested in strain theory because it really jived with my experiences growing up in Atlantic City. And the idea that some individuals turn to crime because they can't achieve conventional success, monetary success, middle-class status through legal channels, I mean, that really struck me. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I can do some work in strain theory. But then, as I say, I read Hershey, I read Ruth Kornhauser, and they were highly critical of strain theory. Hershey um, conducted one of the best tests of classic strain theory at the time, where he looks at the disjunction between aspirations and expectations. So he examines juveniles who want a lot on the one hand, but don't expect to achieve very much on the other, asking, are these the juveniles who are most likely to engage in delinquency? And he finds that they are not. He finds that the juveniles most likely to engage in delinquency are those with both low aspirations and low expectations. 
Juveniles who don't want a lot, juveniles who don't expect to get a lot. And he explains this, of course, in social terms of social control theory, that they have little investment in society. And so that's why they're more likely to engage in delinquency. Kornhauser provides a summary of this research, provides additional criticisms of uh, classic strain theory. And so basically further strain for me. Here's this theory that are very much like classic strain theory, but it's coming under heavy criticism. In fact, some people like Hershey are basically saying the theory should be abandoned. But the theory does make some sense to me. I was fortunate in that I not only was you know, developing this knowledge of uh, crime theory, but had a lot of background at the time in social psychology as well, my major area of study. And so I started drawing on this background, looking in particular at the stress literature, stress, the social psychological term for strain. And there's a rather large stress literature in social psychology, both the psychological part and the sociological part. And this began to inform my work. Also, I began to think back to my own experiences growing up in Atlantic City. And it struck me that, well, yes, strain does seem to cause crime. A lot of the crime that I witnessed, the times that you know, I felt myself perhaps on the verge of crime were times when there was frustration, anger, etc. You want something you can't get and so on. But it struck me that the strain that motivated crime was not so much the inability to achieve future success goals like monetary success, middle class status, but more immediate types of strain. Someone verbally insults you, pushes you, you have a serious dispute with a teacher, a parent, something like that. And when I looked at the stress literature, you know, that reinforced the idea that the stress literature looks at literally scores, if not hundreds of different types of strains. But most of these strains or stressors involve things that are happening in the immediate, in the present, rather than the inability to achieve future success. And so I began to develop my revised strain theory of crime and delinquency. And that's what I did my dissertation on. And at the time, the focus is on strain, not so much as the inability to achieve future success, but rather strain as what I call the blockage of pain avoidance behavior. I basically argued that not only do people want to achieve certain goals, but they also want to avoid painful or adversive situations, but sometimes are unable to do so through legal channels, especially adolescents. Adolescents have little power. So you know, you might not like school, but you have to go there. You might not like the peers in your neighborhood. They may mistreat you, but nevertheless, you have to interact with them. You might not get along with your parents, but you're stuck with them. So often adolescents experience what I call this blockage of pain avoidance behavior. They're being treated in a painful, adversive manner. They want to escape or avoid that, but they're unable to do so. And so I argued that they sometimes turn to crime as a result. They run away from the parents who are abusing them. They assault the peers who are antagonizing them. They skip school to avoid the teachers, mistreat them, and so on. So that is how I uh, ended up moving from a rather general social psychologist at the start of graduate school to a criminologist at the end of graduate school. And then when I was on the job market, and this is, you know, the late 70s, at the time, very few academic jobs were available. And so I was desperate, as were my colleagues, for a decent job. And Emory University advertised a position in criminology. Technically, I still thought of myself as a social psychologist. As I mentioned, I never had a formal course in criminology, but I did a criminology dissertation. Here's this good job that's available. I apply for it and uh, go down to Atlanta, interview, and fortunately got the job 
mentioned that one of the people who interviewed me and the person actually that I replaced at Emory, Alan Lazat, another well-known criminologist who was at Sunny Albany, worked with Terry Thornberry and others. And so I get the job and uh, start teaching crime and delinquency. And, you know, some weeks I'm just a little bit ahead of my students. I'm maybe the next chapter in the textbook, but I learned the criminology literature, really fall in love with the field. And, uh, and so, you know, that's my life's work. That's yeah. What a path, you know, we, I've mentioned this before in some of these, we're calling them reflection episodes where it's like, people are just kind of stumbling so to speak, into criminology, where we've had a lot of people with, you know, sociology backgrounds, which, you know, sociology and criminology are very intertwined. Both Jose and I have sociology PhDs, or Jose will. So it's just kind of like this repetitive idea of, you know, we start as sociologists and move into criminology. Yeah. And I think sociology, of course, you know, criminology, academic criminology originates largely out of sociology and right. provides a very solid foundation for crime research. Although, of course, criminology is increasingly interdisciplinary, which I think is a good thing. It's not just the social Yeah. All right. So you started really to get into a strain theory and you know, we would say it's indisputable that you're most well-known for your general strain theory. And you've answered a number of our questions about, you know, kind of why strain theory was of interest to you, but you formally introduced general strain in your 1992 piece in criminology. Jose and I, however, have always kind of felt that the kernels for it appear in your 1985 piece, a revised strain theory of delinquency and social forces. Was this 1985 piece from your dissertation then? Yes, uh, directly out of my dissertation. Took me a few years to publish it. And I might mention, uh, you know, as if you're a beginning academic and struggling to get those articles out, hang in there and uh, rejection is just part of the game. Don't let it get you down and keep plugging along as I did. So it took a few years, but I got that article published from my dissertation, 1985. And again, the focus is on strain as the blockage of pain avoidance behavior. And I think you know, there's uh, a lot of validity to that idea of strain. I think is an important source of crime delinquency. But after publishing the paper, again, I continue to read the literature, and not just in stress, but in justice, etc. I become more familiar with the criminology literature, not just the quantitative literature, but the qualitative literature, providing you know firsthand accounts of crime delinquency and so on. And I continue to you know mull over the ideas about strain and strain as a, a source of crime. And uh, I gradually begin to think, well, yes, the blockage of pain avoidance behavior, the kernel idea of my dissertation, is an important source of crime delinquency, but it's not the only critical type of strain. And when I start reading, for example, the qualitative literature in criminology, it becomes clear that, you know, often some people will experience adversive or painful treatment and they're able to escape from it or avoid it through legal channels, but nevertheless, they choose to respond with crime. So they're subject, for example, to verbal insult. They could leave the situation. They could notify a teacher, a parent. They could respond in an violent manner, but nevertheless, they respond through violence. And so while the blockage of pain avoidance behavior might increase the likelihood of a criminal response, it's not necessary for a criminal response to occur. So it occurs to me that just aversive, negative treatment in and of itself might lead to crime. So I'm mulling over this idea. I'm looking at the stress literature, looking at related literatures, trying to pull it all together. I still feel there's something to this idea that strain results from the inability to achieve positively valued goals, both goals in the future and more immediate goals. 
you know, I begin work on what will become general string theory. And it goes through a number of versions, and there are many more rejections. But eventually, I come up with the article that was published in Criminology 1992. And I should mention, as an aside, that the editor of Criminology at the time, Charles Tittle, who fortunately has recently passed on, uh, was very supportive and had some great suggestions for that piece. So I want to, you know, recognize him for that. But I ended up drawing in a range of literatures, the stress literature, classic criminology, my dissertation, etc. Come up with general strain theory. And basically in the theory, I argue there are three major sources of strain. The inability to achieve positively valued goals. And these may be future goals like monetary success, middle class status. But more often there are more immediate goals. Getting good grades in school, being popular with peers, you know, etc., Argue that strain results from the presentation of negative stimuli. Fancy way of saying strain results when people treat you in the negative and adverse of a bad manner, verbal, physical abuse, etc. And then strain results from the loss of positively valued stimuli. So you lose something that you value, the breakup with a romantic partner, financial loss, uh, etc. So we have these three general categories of strain. And they're rather broad categories, and they encompass many specific types of strain. As I mentioned, if you look at the psychological, sociological research on stress, some of the stress inventories contain upwards of 200 or more items, both chronic stressors and uh, everyday stressors. So there's a lot of strain, there's a lot of stress out there. And so I have these three general categories designed to direct the attention of criminologists to the broad range of strains out there. It's not just one type of strain, the inability to achieve monetary success or middle-class status. There's a lot of strain out there. And then I argue that individuals who experience these strains, they experience negative emotions, anger, frustration, etc. And these emotions create some pressure for corrective action. You feel bad, you want to do something about it. Well, there are a variety of ways to cope with strain or stress. And most people, when they experience strain, cope in a legal manner. So you're experiencing, say, financial hardship. You have a desperate need for money. Well, maybe you work longer hours at work. Maybe you get a second job. Maybe you take out a loan. Maybe you cut back on expenses, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of ways to cope with pretty much any given type of strain. So that raises a major question. Why is that some people choose to cope in an illegal or criminal manner? And so the second part of general strain theory talks about the factors that influence the response to strain, what we call, quote, conditioning variables. What variables condition the effect of strain on crime? And I argue that there are a good number. So coping skills and resources, for example. Do you have good problem-solving skills? Do you have financial resources that you could turn to, uh, et cetera, social support? Of course, Frank Cullen has come to emphasize the critical importance of social support in its many forms in terms of uh, explaining crime. Personality traits, your beliefs and values, the friends you associate with, whether they encourage your criminal response or not, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a lot of factors there that influence the response to strain. So that was my paper in 1992, uh, the general's foundation for a general strength theory of crime and delinquency. I was very much aware that, you know, this wasn't the final word on general strength theory, but was rather the opening for what I hope would be uh, a lot of additional research, elaboration, and revision, which surprise in part and pleasure has been the case. There's, you know, really been a good deal of work by a lot of talented people on the theory, expanding, revising, elaborating the theory. Yeah, including you yourself 
on that note. And we know that you've written some pieces kind of on the future of general strain, but we were talking about this and we would say, so correct us if we are wrong here, but it kind of seems like your final or complete form of general strain came in 2001 in your piece, building on the foundation of general strain theory. Would you agree with that? I would say you're 50% correct. I think there were two major problems with general strain theory in its basic form. And one of them was brought to my attention by Gary Jensen. And Gary was at the University of Arizona for many years. And he is known, among other things, for shooting down crime theories. It's very rare that a crime theory gets falsified. And Gary is one of the few criminologists who uh, has had some success in that area, but also a friend of mine. And Gary, in one of his publications, basically said there's a serious problem with general strain theory. It is really broad. There are literally hundreds of different types of strain. And that makes it quite difficult to falsify the theory because the researcher might find, well, these types of strain aren't related to crime. But Agnew can simply come back and say, well, they're looking at the wrong types of strain. And if they look at these other types of strain, they would have an impact on crime. Initially, it was hard for me to hear that criticism, particularly coming from a friend, but it was true. And so I set out to a better describe those types of strain most likely and least likely to cause crime. And that's what I did in that 2001 article. And so I argued that, well, yeah, there are some types of strain out there that, if anything, reduce the likelihood of crime. So, for example, if parents sanction their children, their children often don't like that. They may get angry. They may be frustrated. But if the sanctions are delivered in a certain way, they're just, they're fair, they're not excessive, that's going to reduce rather than increase the likelihood of subsequent crime. But then I argued the other types of strain that increase the likelihood of crime. And so in that article, I say that there are four characteristics of strains that are likely to increase crime. One, they're high in magnitude. So if it's a minor strain, easy to ignore, easy to cope with, if it's, say, uh, you suffer small financial loss, well, yeah, you're upset, but no big deal, you move on. But if it's a large financial loss that threatens your ability to provide food, pay rent, et cetera, then, it results in a great deal of negative emotion. It's more difficult to cope with in a legal manner. Second characteristic is that the strain is perceived as unjust. And here I drew on the work of one of my colleagues at Emory, Karen Higvid, who is a leading justice scholar in social psychology. And there's a lot of evidence, well, a lot of research on the characteristics of uh, unjust treatment, the different types of justice and reactions to injustice. And I think if you're treated in an unjust way, in a just way, you're more likely to become angry, upset, sometimes fosters a desire for revenge, to get back, to get even, etc. A third characteristic is a strain is associated with low social control. So as I mentioned, like if your parents sanction you in a regular manner for misbehavior, then that's associated, it creates strain, but it's associated with high social control. But if your parents regularly abuse you, if they kick you out of the house, then that's a type of strain associated with low social control. You experience a loss in supervision, a reduction in parental attachment, etc. So some strains associated with high control, but those strains associated with low control were likely to lead to crime. And then finally, strains are more likely to result in crime when crime is, let us say, a viable option for coping with the strain. So if you experience, for example, the loss of a loved one, that's a major strain or stressor. But uh, engaging in crime isn't going to be a particularly effective way of coping with that. 
But if you experience a major financial loss, if you're regularly bullied, etc., then crime may well be a viable method of coping, of getting the money that you need, but maybe can't get through legal channels, of um, stopping that bullying and getting revenge on the person who's targeting you, etc. And then I go on in that article to list several specific types of strain that I think satisfy these characteristics that are likely to increase crime. Strains like serious financial problems, a desperate need for money, physical and verbal abuse, uh, etc. And so that is one of the two major elaborations of general strain theory. But I said you're only 50% correct. The Mm -hmm. other 50% has to do with the coping part. So I list all these factors that should condition the impact of strain on crime. So strain should be more likely to lead to crime among people who are low in social support, people that have poor problem-solving skills, et cetera, et cetera. And there's been a lot of research on that area. Research basically examines whether strain interacts or is conditioned by particular variables. So does strain interact with, say, certain personality traits, certain measures of social support, certain measures of coping skills, with association with delinquent peers, and so on? And the research in this area has produced mixed results. Sometimes it supports general strain theory, sometimes not. And so that was another real dilemma for me. And so once more, I went outside criminology and I looked at the literature on coping. And there's a fairly large literature on coping with strains and stressors. And one of the central themes in the more recent research in this literature is that if you want to predict how people cope, you can't just focus on one or two factors. So you can't just focus on, say, a particular coping skill or coping resource or a particular type of social support or particular personality trait or you know, just the friends they might associate, et cetera. Because the response to strain or stress really is a function of a range of different factors. So you might have someone with poor coping skills and resources, but they don't cut with strain through crime because they're high in social support. Or you might have someone with a personality trait like negative emotionality, low constraint, but they don't cut with strain through crime because they're high in the other types of social control or because they associate with conventional peers who encourage conventional response, etc. So you really have to look at a range of factors. And so in more recent research, and really this is just the last several years, First, a theoretical paper that appeared in Deviant Behavior, and then an empirical paper with one of my former students, Gerard Thaxton, now professor at law at UCLA, and my statistical guru. In an empirical paper, we test the idea that if you want to predict whether or not strain is going to lead to crime, you need to consider a host of factors that might influence how individuals cope. You need to consider indicators of social support, coping skills and resources, personality traits, levels of social control, criminal peer association, et cetera. So you need to come up with a more general measure. People who score high on this measure unlikely to cope with strain through crime, but people who score low much more likely because uh, they're lacking in a variety of factors that allow for legal coping. And so one of their few options then is criminal coping. And we found a good deal of support for that in the paper that we did. And this also, I should say, builds on a paper that uh, Paul Marizoli and one of his uh, colleagues, uh, Malls, did, where they looked at kind of an omnibus measure of uh, factors that might condition the impact of strain on crime. And when you look at the overall 
these overall measures, we find that, you know, they do an extraordinarily good job of predicting whether or not people cope with strain through crime or through legal channels. So I think those two contributions, you know, represent sort of the two key ways that I've built on the basic foundation of general strain theory. 50% still failing score. (laughs) (laughs) So that actually leads us into another question that we had, and we really wanted to get your thoughts on this because, you know, another theorist, we've mentioned them a couple of times, Travis Hershey, who was seemingly half theorist, half ruffler of feathers. He can be fun to read, even if we don't necessarily agree with everything he says. But I remember reading one of his one of his papers, and I think this is when he was talking about integrated theory specifically, where he drops this line where he says that theorists should develop their theory and that's the theory. Like, this is now the hill that you're going to die on. You don't ever touch this theory. But as we've been talking about over the last several minutes, you've sort of built upon general strength theory. Like, you have your foundation and, you, and you've built upon it. And so we want to get your thoughts on, you know, scholars going back and revising and adding to their theories versus taking the Hershey approach where planting the flag, this is my theory. I'm never going to change this theory and this is the hill that I am now going to die on. Well, I should mention that uh, Travis Hershey, probably the most severe, certainly one of the most severe critics of strain theory, he definitely felt that the theory should be abandoned in favor, of course, of social control theory. And no doubt he was a provocative sociologist, but one of my favorite sociologists. Like you say, he was a lot of fun to read. It kind of stirred you up. He advanced a lot of big ideas, made bold statements, but in doing so, I think, pushed the discipline, certainly pushed me along to produce better work. In my own view, in terms of theory, is that, uh, yes, you put that initial theory out there, but it is critical not to take that as something engraved in stone, so to speak, that it's out there, that's it, it either flies or it doesn't, but rather, as I say in the case of strain theory, I put out that foundation for a general strength theory of crime, very much expecting that the theory be revised, elaborated, changed, etc. And I participated throughout most of my academic career in doing just that. So I would say the final version of strength theory uh, somewhat different, certainly much more elaborated, but different in a few areas than the initial version. And I think that's critical. And of course, it's critical. That's how science advances. You develop some ideas, you test them, and they have some support perhaps, but you see areas where they need to be elaborated, revised, changed, etc. And that's something that I really wanted to emphasize that, you know, the way I would like it is if there was maybe a particular theory, strain theory, you know, version one, version two, version 3.1, etc. Each version better, more powerful than the last. And And that's, as I say, I think how science progresses. It's certainly how general strain theory has progressed. So I'm not at all offended if someone says, well, there's this problem and we need, well, maybe I'm offended for a moment, but eventually I feel, you know, that's good that people are pointing problems that they're working on and they're revising, they're trying to move the theory forward. That's, that's how science should progress. Yeah. I feel like if anything, the like if I came up with the theory, the worst thing that I feel could happen is no one actually talks about it. Like, I think <laughs> I'd much rather have people criticize the theory and have it like stir the pot a little bit than just have it fall to the wayside and be Well, forgotten. that's a great point. And I have several pieces of work outside of general strain theory that I think are good, that I'm proud of, but 
to be quite honest, haven't inspired a lot of additional work, and that does sometimes happen. And I can think of some excellent theories that, you know, Charles Tittle's control balance theory that uh, haven't inspired a whole, that inspired some additional work, but not a whole lot of additional work. And, you know, I think there are a number of things that that influence that. One of the qualitative theory is only one, but also is it testable? And that I think is one of the advantages of general strain theory. It was rather general. It encompasses a lot of different variables and people could turn to a lot of different data sets that were readily available and conduct tests of it. And so that I think is one of the reasons why there was that, you know, develop why a lot of research ended up being done on the theory. So it's fortunate there. Yeah. So speaking of criticisms, we just want to dig into a couple and ask you to respond to them. And just like every theory, general strains not without its critics. And some that we have seen levied actually kind of contradict what you just said, but that general strain theory is not parsimonious and therefore it is difficult to test or that it doesn't account for why not everyone who experiences these same strains engages in delinquency. And you've already touched on some of these elements, but just how would you respond to some of these criticisms? Well, I think, as I mentioned, the criticisms initially had some validity that, you know, I'm talking about literally hundreds of different strains that might contribute to crime. And so that's certainly not a parsimonious theory, uh, although it doesn't mean the theory is wrong, of course. And then I'm talking about a range of factors that influence the response to strain. Again, not parsimonious. And in the research, that looked mostly at these two-way interactions between strain and particular conditioning variables, mixed at best. Yeah, some validity to those criticisms. But as I say, I try to address them. And I think general strain theory has now reached the point where it points to certain key characteristics of strain that should increase the likelihood that those strains will result in crime. And it identifies a number of very specific strains, not a large number, maybe along the line of 15, 20 plus strains that should be especially conducive to crime. And some of those strains have emerged as as, uh, significant, even leading causes of crime, like criminal victimization, for example. And then I think in this most recent work with Sherar Thaxton, better explaining why it is that some people are more likely than any others to respond to strains with crime. So I think those criticisms don't have quite the force that they once did. Okay. And so what do you envision for general strength theory moving forward? Where would you like to see it taken? You know, how further developed as, you know, more and more scholars take interest in general strength? Well, I think that's another reason why string theory has stimulated a lot of research, is that there are a lot of potential avenues for developing the theory. And a lot of people have done a lot of work exploiting those different avenues. So, for example, among other things, you could focus on the impact of particular types of strains and why these strains increase the likelihood of crime, how prevalent they are, what might be done to... uh, reduce the occurrence of these strains or the likelihood of responding to them with crime. And so, for example, literatures are developing on topics like the impact of criminal victimization on crime, exposure to violence on crime, bullying on crime, et cetera, et cetera. You could look at factors that mediate the relationship between strain and crime. So initially, my focus was on anger, people that are expanding that to look at other emotions, frustration, depression, fear, et cetera, and also looking at other mechanisms beside negative emotion, uh, rational choice that strain might you know, promote the perception that crime, a rational way of dealing with one's problems, the impact of strain on social control, st- the experience of strain, particularly in family, school, at work is you know, major source of loose social control, et cetera. 
Now, again, as I mentioned, one could look at the factors that condition the impact of strain on crime. One could apply strain to the explanation of group differences in crime. So there's a lot of been work on, say, gender, strain, and crime, a lot of work on race, ethnicity, strain, and crime, some fascinating work coming out on sexual orientation, strain, and crime, a lot of work on using strain to explain cross-national differences in crime, as well as crime in particular countries. And that raises a lot of fascinating questions, like, for example, are there cross-cultural differences in types of strain? So some people argue, for example, that physical punishment, at least in some groups in the United States, physical punishment by parents is an important source of strain that increases crime. Murray Strauss has built a career on this, but other leaders argue that in certain countries, Korea, for example, that's not a major source of strain. If anything, it's taken as a sign of love on the part of parents. But in Korea, there may be certain academic strains, incredibly stressful, that we don't have in the United States, the same in China. And also factors that condition the response to strain. So, for example, in certain Asian countries where a more collectivist orientation, you know, that may be a, you know, a cultural orientation that reduces the likelihood that strains would lead to crime. Uh, and, you know, policy implications of general strain theory, I think a lot can be done there. I think there is a lot of policy relevant work related to strain theory, although sometimes it doesn't explicitly draw on strain theory. But the policy implications are quite interesting. An obvious one, of course, is that you reduce the experience of strain. And there are a lot of programs that try and do that, that reduce, for example, child abuse, school failure, poverty, etc., but also you reduce the likelihood that people might respond to strains with crime because no matter how much you try, no matter how noble the goal, you're not going to be able to eliminate all strain from society. And so there are a lot of programs that do that, like anger management programs, for example. So if you experience a strain or stressor programs that reduce the likelihood you'll become enraged and strike out. Programs that try and increase social support, big brothers, big sisters, etc. Programs up uh, strain to some extent has a subjective as well as an objective dimension. And so some people will experience the same objective circumstance, say they'll be bumped walking down a hallway, but interpret it very differently. Some people will say, well, that's an accident, brush it off. Some people will say, that's a deliberate provocation I did to respond. So programs designed to reduce the way in which people interpret the environment. It reduces, for example, what's sometimes called negative attributional bias. And really, I can go on and on. So there are a lot of different avenues to uh, develop strain theory. And strain theory, in its initial forms anyway, was very much a social psychological theory focused on the individual. But I think another major avenue of development, and there's been some good work here, is linking strain theory to certain macro theories. It's certainly very compatible with certain feminist theories, certain critical race theories, critical theory more generally, uh, and other theories as well. And I can go on, but a lot of avenues for the development of strain theory and people, as I say, are pursuing all of these avenues and more. Yeah, that must be really wonderful feeling, seeing kind of your life's work being taken up and put into all different directions that maybe you yourself hadn't even of, you know, originally. It's exciting. Uh, and occasionally mm -hmm. I'll, I'll get an email from someone, sometimes from a very unexpected place, Iran, just the other day from Russia, et cetera. Students or faculty who are taking general strain theory, trying to apply it to their own society, but struggling with some of these issues or the particular types of strain that might be especially relevant, factors that might be especially conducive in their particular societies. It is gratifying. It's exciting that they're, they're doing this work. Yeah. All right. So let's spend the last 10, 15 minutes or so talking 
a little bit about you yourself as a scholar and also your ideas and thoughts for the field. So we've talked about your work with general strain theory, but are there any other accomplishments that you are most proud of, either as a researcher, a mentor, or as a professor? Well, let me focus on research and then I'll, I'll move on to mentorship. Most of my work is focused on general strain theory, of course, and that's mm -hmm. what I'm best known for. That's what most of the citations you know, focus on. But I've also done some other work that I'm proud of, uh, some early work on the impact of agency on crime, what agency is, how we might measure it, what its implications are for the explanation of crime. And that work has had a modest effect, although we're starting to see more and more work on agency that's kind of expanding and gone well beyond what I've done. I've always been interested, I've never felt that general strain theory is the theory of crime, but it's just one of several theories, and it's certainly related to the other leading theories of crime. So I've always had an interest in integrated theories of crime. And so I did a book that, that I'm proud of, A General Theory of Crime and Delinquency. And it's inspired some limited research, but it's one of those theories that's rather difficult to test. And so it hasn't inspired nearly as much research as I hoped, although I'm now at work on yet another version of integrated theory. Hopefully this will inspire more work. And then one of my more recent books toward a unified criminology, again, related to my interest in integrated theory, where I look at some of the underlying assumptions of crime theory, assumptions about the nature of human nature, the nature of society, the nature of reality, agency uh, versus determinism, et cetera. And drawing on research from a lot of areas, I love reading in criminology, but also I've gained a lot from reading outside criminology. I put forward a set of what I hope will be unifying assumptions that allow us to pull the different crime theories together. So, for example, pull together social control theory with strain theory, critical theory with more mainstream theory, etc., and some of the ideas in that book, like, for example, our arguments about social concern and crime, which deals with the nature of human nature, have received uh, some limited attention. But uh, it's general strain theory that gets, gets most of the attention. So you cut off when you were talking about your integration of control and strain theory. Oh, I was just saying that this book that I wrote, Toward a Unified Criminology, designed to help integrate the different theories, perspectives in criminology, like, for example, integrate control theory with strain theory, which are often seen as having different underlying assumptions. But I argue that, in fact, if you look closely at the nature of human nature, you know, it supports both a social control theory and a strain theory. If you look at the underlying assumptions about the nature of society, consensus versus conflict assumptions, they support both mainstream and conflict theory, etc. So, um, that's another accomplishment that I'm proud of, and it stimulated some additional work, like work on social concern and crime, which has to do with the nature of human nature, but not a lot of work. Again, you know, I'm most known for my work on general strength theory, and I'm, you know, I feel very fortunate, very lucky that, you know, that has received the attention that it has. All right. And what advice would you give to a newly hired assistant professor, <laughs> Robert Agnew? Well, first, several bits of advice. First, you have to have a thick skin. Can't get discouraged. You're going to get some rejections. Everyone gets rejected, including the top people in the field. When I was a graduate student at the University of North Carolina, I had the good fortune to be a student assistant editor at the journal Social Forces. And one of the things that immediately surprised me was we would get these manuscripts by often leading scholars in the area, and they would sometimes get rejected. And some of the rejections would be brutal. 
And that was really eye-opening for me. So I would say, yeah, you're going to get rejected. It's part of the game. Expect it. Some of the rejections are going to be rather tough. Some of the rejections are going to be unfair. They're not going to be based on a good or a closer and accurate reading of what you've done. But again, have a thick skin, be sad, be depressed for that day. But the next day, get back to that manuscript, take from the rejection what you feel is of use, disregard what you feel is off base, and continue to work on that manuscript if you feel it's a good manuscript. Don't end up with like 10 revise and resubmits in your file cabinet, you know, put away for months or years on end because you got depressed, it got rejected at this journal, it got rejected even in a second journal. I have had articles rejected at four or five different places, but I keep working on them, I keep improving them, and eventually they see the light of day in a publication. And ultimately, I think they're often much better than they would have been in their initial form. So that's one bit of advice. Have a tough skin. You'll get there. Second bit of advice, read widely. Increasingly, criminology is becoming more and more specialized. A lot of people getting their PhDs in criminal justice programs where they're taking maybe scores of courses in the area. And that's important. That's useful. There's a lot to learn. But I think, at least for me and for many other scholars that I've seen, a major source of innovation in the field is taking what's being done in criminology and relating it to work in other areas, be it psychology, different areas of sociology, economics, etc., combining the areas, and that's often a major source of innovation. So for me, a lot of what was being done in the larger stress literature and the justice literature and the emotions literature, et cetera, very much informed general strain theory, and I think made the theory much stronger as a result. Now, it's hard enough to keep up with the literature and criminology. So, you know, how are you going to read widely? If you're a graduate student, you know, maybe take a course or two or three outside your department that you might think is relevant. If you're a faculty member, maybe pay a visit to some of your colleagues who work in other areas or working in other departments who you think might be doing work that has some relevance to what you're doing. Maybe invite them to lunch and share some of the stuff you're working on. Ask them about your work. Ask them if there's anything you think you would benefit from reading. And then if you search, if you look, there are a lot of good overview articles out there, a lot of annual reviews coming out in various areas, including now criminology, that provide wonderful overviews, can save you a lot of time. And uh, so to the extent that you can, if you think there's work being done in your particular area, but outside the area that you might think is irrelevant, you know, take a look at that. And when you're reading the larger literature, of course, read with a critical eye. You know, don't be afraid to ask the big questions. Does this make sense? Does this jive with my own experiences? Does it just, you know, correspond to what I've observed or what I've read about in the qualitative literature? What seems to be missing here, always have in the back of your mind, you know, how can we build on this? How can we improve it? What I've done, I have a file really with just ideas that I write down. I'm reading something, something occurs to me. I don't have time to pursue it. But I write down a little note, maybe later on that becomes a paper or part of a paper or something like that. So I always read with a critical, creative idea. And finally, I guess I'd say develop support networks. And this sort of relates to the other side of having a thick skin. Social support is important if you're going to develop and survive with that thick skin. And so, you know, have some people, they may be in your department, they may be in another department at university, maybe at the similar level as you, or someone that, you know, you hang out with at the meetings or you went to graduate school with, or you've met online, et cetera, who you could share ideas with, exchange thoughts, get feedback on the papers that you've written. It's often good to get that informal feedback from one or a few callers colleagues before you send something out for a review. 
So, uh, so then maybe that's enough for now. I don't want to overwhelm you. But also let me move on to mentoring. That's been one of the other really major satisfactions of my life. I've been very fortunate that I've had some exceptional grad students, undergrad as well, but some really exceptional grad students have gone on to really uh, outstanding careers on their own in criminology. And, you know, we've maintained our ties. In fact, uh, at this last American Society of Criminology meeting in Philadelphia, we renewed an old tradition. We got together for dinner one night, and there must have been about 15 of us just um you know, share stories, connect with one another and provide support to one another. But I've collaborated with many of these students. They collaborate with one another. They've really been major forces in developing general strain theory. They work in many other areas as well. And uh, so that's been a major source of satisfaction to me. And these individuals who initially started out as, say, you know, beginning graduate students in my course have really become good lifelong friends and colleagues. Wonderful. And our final question for you is more about the discipline. And so what do you think of the current state of criminology and criminal justice? And where would you like to see the discipline move going forward? Well, I should mention I've been retired for about five years now. So I'm not as diligent about reading the journals as I used to be. And this last ASC meeting in Philadelphia was the first one that I've attended in several years (laughs) since before COVID. So I can't say that I'm really truly up to date on the field. But my general perceptions is that in some ways the field is doing extraordinarily well. Theories continue to be refined, developed, etc. You look, for example, at what's being done in the area of rational choice theory, the drawing on behavioral economics, the drawing in a variety of different areas. They continue to refine, develop the theory. It's really amazing. And in connection with that, the data analytic techniques that are in use now, you know, now well beyond, I used to think of myself as a statistical person, but now well beyond my level and sometimes comprehension. And criminologists, of course, have made some important contributions to the policy arena. So I think those are wonderful things. But at the same time, I sometimes I'm a little concerned that the work often seems so highly specialized. A lot of people seem to be working in their little silos. You have the rational choice silo. You have this silo, that silo. And sometimes there's some communication between silos, but you don't see a lot of the general broad work that you used to, with some exceptions. I mean, there's Wickstrom situation, auction theory, the work of Ron Simmons, Kelly Burton, the others that are really, I think, doing a fine job integrating different literatures and theories and so on. But the discipline, I don't know, sometimes seems to be more and more specialized. And, you know, so for example, I think if an outsider were to come in and pose the question, well, what, tell me what causes crime? And ask that to 10 or 15 criminologists they would come away perhaps very confused and overwhelmed. I think maybe we need to do a little bit better job of pulling things together, simplifying and communicating that to the larger society. And in connection with that, maybe I think we can do better uh, influencing policy. One of the things that I was really sad to see, you know, of course, there have been some very well-publicized incidents involving police killings of African-Americans for the most part and protests associated with that. And that in turn stimulated a lot of discussion about the police should we defund the police? Should we change how the police? And there was enormous discussion of that in the media. And I felt that criminology had so much to offer that discussion, that so much good work had been done there uh, by a range of you know very well-known police scholars. But I didn't see that work referenced all that much. I didn't, it didn't seem to be that criminology was having a very large voice in that discussion. And that saddened me. I think 
we need to do more there. What we can do, I don't know. People like John Lab have talked about translational criminology and so when there's been a lot of discussion of what we might do. And so there's some good ideas out there. And I know that the ASC and other groups are making an effort to have more of an impact on policy. But so I don't have anything specific to suggest, but uh, I just wish that, you know, we were more involved in those discussions and having a bigger impact. Although we've certainly had some significant impact. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Those are all of the questions that we have for you today. If people would like to reach out to you, I know you're retired, although you're still actively working and writing a new book. And so this idea of retirement in academia just goes right over my head. But where can people find you if they have questions or reach out? They to should you? Just, um, just email me at B Agnew, B A G N E W at Emory, E M O R Y dot E D U, and an email address they could probably easily find on the web. You know, I'll do my best to respond. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much again, Robert. It's been wonderful talking to you and hearing your perspectives on strain theory and general strain theory in particular. Well, thanks again for including me in the podcast series and uh, for all of your work on the series. You're making a, a real contribution. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.